0: Welcome to another podcast from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. My name is Raj Persaud, and in this program we're talking to authors of papers published in December's edition of the British Journal of Psychiatry. It's a classic Hollywood scene. Robert De Niro is sitting at a bar, when all of a sudden he turns and pounces menacingly on an innocent stranger. Are you looking at me? he says which examines why it is that psychopaths misinterpret facial emotional expression, and the paper furthermore argues that this could be the key deficit that underlies psychopathy and explains it. Also later, we'll be talking about whether it's possible to predict who is going to be violent in the future, and how much it will cost your doctor financially to cheer you up. A new paper has come up with an amazingly precise figure, and I think it will surprise you. But first, Karen Jockelson, from the King's Fund, who's author of a paper pointing out there is a cloud hanging over the future of psychiatric hospitals in England. And it's a cloud of smoke. Basically, these places are supposed to become smoke or cigarette-free, according to a new health act. But it looks like there are lots of problems. So, Karen... What exactly is going on?
1: Well, after several years' work, the government has finally passed the new Health Act, which, as you said, introduces smoke-free regulations across the country. And what's been in the news are the regulations around banning uh, smoking in pubs and restaurants. What's been less in the news but more of interest to your audience is the fact that um, what's under discussion at the moment is whether... Um, institutions which provide residential accommodation should also go smoke-free. And the suggestion is that if um, uh, residents are there for uh, longer than six months, then there will be rights to have a smoking room. But if it's less than six months, then that institution should be smoke-free. And obviously, this is of concern to psychiatric units who have patients staying there for different lengths of time. There is a good deal of concern around the implications of the Act for psychiatric units. The King's Fund conducted a survey much earlier this year, and we found that about 40% of units had no intention of introducing um, anything that looked like the Act, although this was before they knew what the content of the regulations was going to look like. and What was quite interesting was the kinds of attitudes that came came up, which I think are still relevant now, So, for example, a lot of uh, the people we interviewed said um, that a smoking ban was impossible, it was unrealistic, it was unachievable. There were real, real deep concerns about what it would mean for patients, and a lot of fear that if you prevented patient smoking, you would result in a lot of violence and a lot of aggression, Um, staff would be under great abuse, but also it would increase the amount of stress and anxiety that patients experienced. And finally, there were also a good number of uh, clinical staff who felt that dealing with patients' smoking status actually detracted from their medical care. They felt that patients were there because they had mental health problems and their physical health was actually of less significance.
0: The other thing that comes out from your paper is how important aspect of many psychiatric patients' lives, smoking actually is. You have some statistics about how many psychiatric patients actually smoke and how many are very heavy smokers, and actually it's a very large number indeed.
1: That's true. Just to give you some idea, in the general UK population, um, about 25% are smokers and 9% are heavy smokers, so they smoke over 20 cigarettes a day. If you look at the population of psychiatric patients, it's far, far higher. Up to 70% of psychiatric patients smoke, and around 50% of those are heavy smokers. And even patients who are less ill than are in the community, the smoking rates are very high. So um, I think there there are about up to 40% smoke, and close to 30% of those are smoke heavily. So you can see there's a real imbalance there.
0: And while one might, one might understand that patients might object to having smoke-free environments in these hospital wards, what was really interesting about your paper was you pointed out actually lots of staff were very worried and concerned about this. And one of the really interesting things that came through from the paper was the idea that staff felt that actually they could use cigarettes as a way perhaps of calming patients down, as a way of actually almost manipulating patients to get their way. Cigarettes were a tool in the hands of the staff.
1: That was very striking. It's evident both from the international literature where people have done anthropological studies of psychiatric units and also from um, our own survey that smoking is deeply ingrained in the culture of um, mental health care. So, Staff speak a lot about using cigarettes as a way of making social contact, of putting patients at ease. They speak about smoking as a comfort or a pacifier for people who are already in distress. And they also speak about using cigarettes as a way of controlling patients' behavior. So it's something you can use to negotiate if you want a patient to behave in one way or another.
0: Now, the practical implications of the act are that psychiatric wards, like the one that I have at the Bethlehem, will have to be smoke-free. Now, what exactly does that mean? That means that no room in the ward at all, smoking will be permitted there. So if you want to have a smoke, you have to go outside. And the trouble is a lot of patients are detained under there are sex the Mental Health Act, and some units don't have access to outside space. Some units are at the top of a tall building, for example, and there is no access to outside space. So it really has a dramatic impact on, on patients who do smoke.
1: That is correct. So as it stands, the Act doesn't allow smoking indoors. You can smoke outside. The regulations as proposed, and those are still under consultation, and hopefully we'll see the results of that towards the end of this year, don't go into much detail about what you do if you don't have the physical space to allow patients to smoke safely outdoors. And I think that is a matter of concern. But at the same time, given that health services are all, always under development, there are Department of Health guidelines which say patients should have access to outside space and it should be part of their therapeutic environment. And I think this act is possibly it's a good time for um healthcare providers to stand back and think what do you, you want to provide for patients? What would a good quality healthcare environment look like? Being smoke-free, access to good outside space, provision of interesting activities on the ward, access to something that allows people to have some physical exercise, a good diet and not smoking are all part of a more holistic approach to healthcare, and that's something that should be open or available for psychiatric patients as well.
0: The other thing your paper does is it reviews literature on how effective smoking bans are because a lot of people are clearly afraid that actually it's not implementable. And you come up with an interesting finding what the difference between an absolute ban and a partial ban. What, what did you mean by an absolute ban as opposed to a partial ban?
1: Well, that's one of the problems of surveying the literature, actually, because many of the articles and the reviews we looked at are not very clear how they define it. I think it makes sense in the particular context they're in, but it's harder to understand um, from outside the context. But I think what we've taken in our paper as a total ban would mean no smoking either indoors or outdoors, and there were certainly some prisons that would have satisfied that that criteria. And partial ban ranged from being no smoking indoors to what was uh, least successful was having a smoking room where people could choose to smoke. And there was certainly, there's lots of evidence which shows that when you have, um, you pr- you have introduced smoke-free uh, zones in public spaces, so I'm thinking now of the, the work around the impact of smoking bans in restaurants and pubs, you immediately see a decline in smoking, and smokers will smoke less and some will be motivated to quit. And the other issue that's interesting is they will smoke less at home. And what's interesting is that parallel seems to follow over into some mental health units. There were some studies that seemed to suggest the same thing happened, and where you had a very um, consistent message going in, a, in an institution that no smoking was allowed. There was provision made for easy access for patients to uh, smoking cessation aids. Psychiatric patients, although they smoke many of them smoke, are also interested in quitting, but they often aren't able to access the services. So the trick there was making sure that there are... Um, there's a smoking cessation service available for those who wish to quit when they're on the ward and that that support follows on when they move into the community.
0: But basically your paper is arguing that actually um, nothing too terrible is going to happen if you implement a ban and that people are too afraid, particularly staff, uh, of of the the, the possible consequences of this ban that's on the horizon, looming on the horizon for psychiatric units here in, in, in England.
1: I do. I think it's a matter of perception and having a cigarette around I think is... Just become the way people um, interact with one another and how they organise care or, and interact with patients. And so, there's a lot of fear about what happens if you don't have that to depend on. And yet, on the whole, when people understand why there are rules, they're fairly agreeable to following them. And there were a few cases of um, units where we with that had introduced um, a smoking a smoke-free regulations ahead of the legislation. And on the whole, they said patients conformed. You might have had occasional instances of patients trying to smoke in their own rooms. But once the reason behind the, the regulations was explained, on the whole, people were willing to conform.
0: But what's really fascinating about your paper is you, you raise some challenges about the way psychiatrists, perhaps, or mental health professionals think about health you, you, you're suggesting in the paper that actually a lot of them are thinking that mental health is something very different from physical health, and actually that sometimes if, if smoking a cigarette calms a patient down, that's a price worth paying in terms of damage to their physical health in terms of the positive, positive effect mm-hmm. on their mental health. And I think you raise an interesting point. You say that psychiatric patients in the paper, we already know, have some serious problems around their physical health. They tend to have high blood pressure, they tend to be overweight, um, you know, they tend to have high cholesterol. And smoking on top of that really is raising a serious question about the physical health care of patients in the psychiatric system.
1: That's true. And the statistics are fairly appalling, actually. So, for example there's a UK study that showed heart disease, it was 1.6 times more common in people with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder than in the general population. And there are various North American studies which also show that deaths from heart disease are more than twice that of the general population. And again, there's similar statistics for respiratory diseases. The rates within mental health populations are far, far higher than the general population. So you can see there's a real problem. And in terms of absolute deaths, again, it mental health patients are more likely to die from um, respiratory disease or heart disease, the the diseases that are related in some way to smoking. And so the question is, why is that being ignored when a patient presents with a a mental health disorder? And while it's true, uh, the service is there to try and help a patient learn to live with the illness or recover from the illness, I think it's a real oversight not to look at the relationship between people's physical health and their mental health. And I also think it's an oversight... There's a lack of understanding about what nicotine does to individuals' uh, physiology and to their mental health. So there are lots of studies which show that in some way there's a relationship between smoking and various disorders. It's not clear whether it's a causal relationship. There's also some discussion over whether smoking is used to self-medicate and again, this is I think the the evidence is still not very clear. so you have some papers arguing, "Yes, that is the case," and others who say, "Well, there are no random controlled tr- trials that actually indicate there is a self medication effect And what some th- um, studies are suggesting is that an ordinary withdrawal I- in effect smoking I- people smoke to deal with the symptoms of withdrawal, so when you smoke, you initially feel alert, um, you feel more relaxed. As the nicotine goes down, uh, you begin to feel irritable, you might feel a bit depressed, uh, you might experience cravings, and some of those symptoms mimic what you might expect in a mental health patient. And so what people might, what staff might read as a worsening of symptoms if if a patient doesn't have access to um, cigarettes or tobacco, uh, may in fact really be a readout of, well, this is a withdrawal effect from the nicotine, and how better, can you manage that in a better way?
0: The other point you make in the paper is that cigarettes are part of a lifestyle culture on wards that that actually also contributes to, to, to problems. So, for example, one of the points you make is often patients stay up late at night smoking heavily, and as a result of smoking heavily in the middle of the night, they find it difficult to go to sleep, and then they wake up late the next day, and the nurses complain that the patient you know, isn't taking part mm. in occupational health activities on the ward. So smoking kind of contributes indirectly or directly to a lot of other problems that maybe mental health professionals are not so aware of on the ward itself.
1: In our survey, over 70% um, of the sites that returned the survey had smoking rooms and what was interesting we asked them to describe them the activities that went on in the smoking rooms were that was the place where the coffee machine was that was where the tv was uh, that was the only place patients had a chance to sit around and relax or a chance to meet other people and talk to them so actually the smoking room played a really important function um, on the ward it was the focal point of socializing
0: And when they took the smoking room away, one of the points you made is that sometimes actually they came up with often more constructive activities as well.
1: Yeah, that's true. One of the sites had been re-examining their quality of clinical care and had decided to include smoking um, as part of their attempt to redress problems in their care. And when they uh, closed down their smoking room, although they allowed patients to smoke outside, and they were able to use what had formerly been smoking facilities for both clinical activities and to provide a fresh air environment in which people could socialize. So in order to go and watch TV or have your coffee or talk to other people, you were now in a smoke-free zone. And they also found, because they had introduced uh, very clear rules around when you could smoke and where you could smoke, it improved the, the, so the quality of the social life and interaction on the wards. So patients were going to sleep much earlier because TV went off at midnight, um, and it was it was less desirable once you couldn't smoke and watch TV, and they were up early and they also had other activities, but again that's a, that's a drawn resources, so Ward has to decide to invest in a range of activities that will interest patients.
0: Now, Karen, I have to ask you this question, but i 'm taking a wild guess here, having mm. read the paper that you are probably not a smoker no, I'm not <laughs> but do you have a very strong aversion to it? Is that one of the motivations that led you to write the paper?
1: No. This is a chart I mean this is a really laudable uh, effort by the government. It will have a real impact on general populations health and mental health patients tend to be overlooked uh, their health status their huge, huge inequalities in in health status real problems with um, inequalities in access to health care often a patient is seen as a mental health patient rather than a patient who has a range of physical illnesses as well as their mental health problems. Uh, What I would hope is that these new regulations actually encourage um, clinicians and nursing staff to look at their patients in a holistic way and begin to think about how their physical health status interacts with their mental health status and begin to treat them as a whole person.
0: Karen Jockelson, thank you very much indeed. Now, joining me here in the library at the Royal College of Psychiatrists at number 17 Belgrave Square in the middle of London is Dr. Michael Doyle, a forensic nurse consultant at the University of Manchester. He and co-author Maree Dolan are publishing a fascinating paper in the December issue of the British Journal of Psychiatry entitled Predicting Community Violence from Patients Discharged from Mental Health Services. Now, the key point about this paper, uh, Dr. Doyle, is that you're looking at, ha- at what factors predict when patients are being discharged from hospital, whether they're going to be violent or not in the future. And one of the things you mention in the paper is the notion of an actuarial approach. What is meant by an actuarial approach to the assessment or prediction of future violence?
2: Um, An actuarial approach is basically a statistical approach to predicting uh, an outcome, in this case violence. Um... It's used extensively in other areas of science uh, and also in the finance and insurance industry. So, for example, if you were to get car insurance, they would use an actuarial approach to determine the risk of you making a claim in the following 12 months.
0: And what they're then looking at is your age, your gender, your occupation, and they're using those facts to predict the future.
2: Yes, that's correct. They're using actual facts, actual things that have actually happened and that are measurable.
0: But you're contrasting that attempt to predict future violence with what you call a kind of clinical approach. What did you mean by that? The clinical approach is the traditional approach adopted by
2: mental health clinicians, psychiatrists, and psych- psychologists, and, and mental health nurses to look at how they reach judgments in terms of risk. And the way that's actually implemented is usually by way of an interview with the individual concerned where uh, an impression is made based on that interview and the information to hand at the time. And the advantage of that approach is that the assessor can actually take into account a a number of factors that are pertinent to the individual being assessed. But a criticism of it is that it can be very subjective and can um, lead to personal bias as the individual isn't uh, governed by any uh, particular structure or list of items that they need to consider.
0: Could you give us an example of the kind of factor a more clinical approach might take into account as opposed to an actuarial approach to predicting future violence? Yeah.
2: Clinical presentation during interview would be a clinical um, approach to making, reaching a judgment about violence risk, whereas a, um, a person's age or past history may well be something more of an actuarial risk factor.
0: One of the things that came through from the paper, for example, would be irritability or impulsivity. W- w- could we say that assessing someone as being irritable or impulsive isn't the actuarial approach, it's more the clinical approach?
2: It can, it can be actuarial or it can be clinical. Um, it really depends upon um, whether we're thinking about impulsivity in terms of um, the past and looking at the historical aspects of, of their impulsivity, or if we were looking at the here and now impulsivity as they present to an individual.
0: And you referred to previous research, which seems to emphasise the notion that actually the actuarial approach is the better one for predicting future violence.
2: In terms of prediction, it has been found in many studies that the actuarial approach is superior to the clinical approach. When we're looking at epidemiological approaches, um, we're looking at large groups and aggregate data. However, on an individual basis, that is by no means um, certain that uh, the actuarial approach would be the best approach to adopt because individual clinicians very often have to take into account the here-and-now factors that they are presented with.
0: Now, this is really a hot topic in psychiatry, isn't it, predicting violence Mm -hmm. um, in the future, because the government seems to be very preoccupied with with public safety and it, it seems to be something that's driving policy in, in terms of the Mental Health Act and, and areas like that. So it's a very important subject whether psychiatrists can predict who is going to be violent or not in the future.
2: Yes, that's correct. And especially with the um, the imminent arrival of the men- new Mental Health Act bill, um, we really need to consider how we actually assess risk. I mean, risk assessment is nothing new to um, the area of forensic psychiatry and mental health services. Throughout the ages, people with a mental illness or mental health problem um, have been felt to have some sort of elevated risk of of violence because of the actual um, problems that they pose. Um, What is different, I think, in more recent times is that we have to be uh, much clearer about how we actually conduct our risk assessments and reach
0: risk judgments and make risk decisions. Now, the study you did was following up a group of people, patients um, from general psychiatric wards and also forensic units, discharged Mm -hmm. uh, from these units, roughly around 100 people, slightly over 100, Mm -hmm. followed up um, over a period of time. I think on average, 24 weeks was Mm -hmm. the follow-up period. And the first striking thing that comes through from this paper is the very high rate of violence. I mean, roughly one in five patients was involved in a violent incident
2: that's correct i mean it was surprising compared to previous uh, estimation of, estimations of um how many people um discharged from possible would become violent this was um this this was uh, more than would be expected however i think that is largely because of the method that was adopted in that we used a triangulation approach in looking at um, official case records hospital records um criminal justice records We also interviewed the individual and asked them for a self-report of violence. And most importantly, we included a collateral, somebody who knew the individual well. And this has been used previously in the MacArthur Foundation study. Um, And they found that that greatly enhanced the detection of violent behavior. And really it's this the standard now for this type of research if you are to get a true reflection of the prevalence of violence following discharge.
0: Well, that was the other really worrying thing that came through from the paper. You, you pointed out in the paper that if you just look at official ways of, of getting at whether people have been violent or not, the official statistics or the official data or the official records, you would only detect around half. Of all the violent incidents that had actually occurred. So that's also very worrying that actually people are out there being violent and it's probably not being detected by the system very often.
2: I think that's correct, yes. And I think um, some of the previous um, papers that have been published, certainly some of the epidemiological studies, have, um, or it's very likely that they have um, grossly underestimated the amount of violence in society, not just from. Uh, people with mental
0: health problems but also in the general population. That's a key point though isn't it? This, this paper didn't have a control group so we don't know if we were to compare patients with the with the control population what the, what the comparison, how it would stack up. But I, I did think it was again worrying that you were dealing with patients who had been discharged in other words they had been deemed to be fit to be discharged from psychiatric units including forensic units mm-hmm. and yet there was this very high rate of violence.
2: Yes, that that is correct. I mean, the the point regarding the um, normal control, they, we we were trying to model our design on the MacArthur Foundation uh, study, the MacArthur Violence Risk Assessment Study. Now, obviously, it wasn't as big as that study, and we there were some slight differences in terms of the sample, um, and the follow-up period, and the risk factors that we actually uh, evaluated. However, the findings were very similar, and uh, they also um, they actually did have a um, normal control group, and they found that the prevalence of violence was very similar between the um, the control group and the patient group, um, except when um, they took into account dis- uh, substance abuse, so that there was no difference in the prevalence of violence following discharge except when the patient group um, abuse substances.
0: Now, one of the um, fascinating things that comes through through from the paper is, is this issue about the fact that if psychiatrists get it right, in other words, they think someone is about to be violent, and they readmit the person to hospital, let's say, therefore preventing a violent episode, then that correct prediction would lead to violence being prevented, and therefore, if the violence hasn't occurred, then... The trouble with research is it, it would, if that was being studied in a research way, it would actually lower um, the, the, the apparent finding of the predictive power of psychiatrists because in preventing the violence, the violence hasn't actually happened mm-hmm. and therefore, as a result, it wouldn't be picked up by, by a study like this and therefore, although the psychiatrists are getting it right in readmitting people, it wouldn't show up in the data. All that shows up is where, is where you get it wrong.
2: Again, th- this, this is really a product of the research. There is what's, re- what's um, referred to as the risk paradox, whereby those people who are judged to be high risk, um, you are actually duty-bound to prove yourself wrong. So from a clinical perspective, you, if somebody is deemed to be high risk, then you have to intervene to prove yourself wrong, but with the best intentions, of course, to minimise or prevent harm occurring, whereas in research that would look like um, a failure or that uh, it would lead to um, uh, uh, conclusions that the um, judgment was actually inaccurate.
0: One um, final point I want to talk about is I I think the paper makes an interesting point about one of the instruments you use to to measure various parameters. Anger and impulsiveness come through as a key factor in predicting future violence. So one one of the outcomes from this paper seems to be for clinicians to focus a bit more on assessing anger and impulsiveness. What are your thoughts about that?
2: Yes, I, th- I think that's correct. I think one of the, the most striking things about the uh, anger and impulsiveness measures were that they were self-report. And traditionally, people have been very sceptical about self-report in mental health services, um, and in particular in forensic mental health services. So for anger and impulsiveness to be shown to be highly, so, so highly predictive in this particular sample was quite striking. And I would say that anger and impulsiveness Um, was found to be highly predictive whereas the diagnostic category of personality disorder wasn't Um, and I think that together with the finding that psychopathy was predictive suggests that the diagnostic categories perhaps uh, aren't of that much use when deciding uh, an individual's um, risk for violence that it may be um, personality disorder traits.
0: Mike Doyle thank you very much indeed. Thank you. You're listening to a podcast from the Royal College of Psychiatrists broadcasting papers being published in the British Journal of Psychiatry. I'm joined now by Dr. Quinton Dealey, who's a research psychiatrist working in the section of brain maturation at the Institute of Psychiatry in London. He's also a clinical consultant psychiatrist working at the MITES unit at the Bethlehem Royal Hospital. Uh, Now, Quinton, you're publishing a very interesting paper in uh, this month's edition of, of the British Journal of Psychiatry entitled Facial Emotion Processing in Criminal Psychopathy. So let's start off with the fact that you were studying criminal psychopaths. Mm. What does that mean? What is a criminal psychopath?
3: A criminal psychopath is a person with the personality disorder of psychopathy. It's a person who uh, commits persistently antisocial behavior without guilt or empathy for his victims. So we can think of criminal psychopathy um, as a particularly severe subset of the population of people with antisocial personality disorder, the hallmark of it being um, antisocial behaviour with a, a particular emotion dysfunction of lack of empathy.
0: So these are people who break the law, and they don't just break the law, but they seem to not understand why other people, for example, might get upset about them breaking the law. They seem to have very little sense, for example, of feeling sorry for their victims or having a sense of what their victims might feel like to experience uh, their behaviour.
3: Yes, that's correct. They're particularly characterised by a deficit in what's called emotional empathy or affective empathy. In other words, they're able to work out what other people are thinking... Um, in the way that the rest of us are able to do. But they just don't uh, share a sense of the importance of the emotions that they produce in people as a consequence of their offending.
0: So is it they don't understand uh, the emotional implications of what they're doing or they don't even experience the the emotions? In other words, they, they wouldn't know what it is like to feel love, for example, or feel attachment. Or is that a question we don't know the answer to yet?
3: It's probably a question we don't know the answer to completely, um, although it, we are moving in the direction of being able to describe, the, to describe the problem more precisely, to know how to choose between those two alternatives. Um, within the clinical instrument that's used to de- diagnose the personality disorder of psychopathy, the hair psychopathy checklist, it stated that uh, psychopaths have a shallow affect. Um, That is to say they may use emotion words that we would ordinarily use, uh, but they use them in a way which seems shallow and unconvincing. Uh, So it may be that they don't seem to uh, have a uh, sense of the true affective resonances or connotations of the words that they're using. Uh, In terms of the actual empathy deficit uh, itself, it also seems to be the case that uh, they just do not experience qualitatively the same kind and of intensity of feelings that we do when we witness the distress or pain of others.
0: This group of people are also thought to be particularly dangerous, aren't they? Because it's just not that they, they do dangerous things in terms of uh, antisocial behaviour, but they don't seem to feel any remorse or guilt, and they don't even seem to understand why other people are upset by what they do.
3: Yes, Um One of the hallmarks of of psychopathy, as it's defined in the hair psychopathy checklist, is recidivistic offending. Uh, And indeed, uh, people with the personality disorder of psychopathy are four times as likely to have re-offended one year after release from prison um, as offenders without the diagnosis of psychopathy. So recidivism is a hallmark of the syndrome. Uh, In terms of why people with psychopathy may re-offend, there are a number of possible reasons for that. But one of the the reasons for that may be a lack of um, anticipatory arousal regarding the consequences of offending. Um, And uh, also uh, they are individuals who may not um, fear the consequences uh, of punishing as well.
0: So how did you recruit this very dangerous group of people into your study? How did you find them? Well, we used uh,
3: forensic services uh, in the South London and Morsley NHS Trust and also at St. George's Hospital uh, Trust as well. Uh, We collaborated closely with forensic psychiatrists who uh, identified uh, people whom they suspected would score highly on the hair psychopathy checklist. Um, We... So we administered the psychopathy uh, checklist um, and invited uh, in, invited people to participate in the study. I think it's probably true to say that um, they have been an extremely difficult group of subjects to recruit and probably more than half of the people that we approached weren't interested um, uh, in participating in the research.
0: So you were interested in the way that these people... Uh, process uh, the expression of emotions in other people's faces. Now, why is that a subject of interest at the moment?
3: Well, in general terms, there's been uh, a great deal of interest in cognitive neuroscience, in facial expression uh, perception uh, and its relationship to social cognition, social understanding and emotional and moral development. Uh, There has been um, a hypothesis advocated or put forward by a cognitive neuropsychologist called James Blair uh, that facial distress cues play a particularly important part in our moral development uh, because they function as innately aversive or punishing stimuli. That is to say, if a a child in a a playground uh, tries to steal the sweets uh, of another child, and that other child bursts into tears. The theory is that that display of distress engenders an aversive emotional reaction in the child and acts like a punisher, therefore, inhibits the actual behavior which they're currently engaging in, and also sets up a conditioned association between their representation of the action they've just done and the emotional response which it engendered, and therefore modifying their behavior in future. Following on from that, if there's a selective impairment, in the perception and processing of facial distress cues, then that would be a possible mechanism for why some people fail to become morally socialized in the normal way, and hence a possible explanation of the personality
0: disorder of psychopathy. So, in other words, um, if I do a bad thing to someone else and they get upset and they burst into tears, yet I have no emotional connection with that upset, then maybe I wouldn't learn... But it's not a great way to behave towards other people.
3: Yes, exactly. You'd be, from this perspective, you'd be losing, you'd be missing one of the actual, absolutely critical ways in which we learn to link up emotion with our actions.
0: And the theory is that may explain that may be the underlying deficit that explains what's going on with psychopaths.
3: Yes, that's right. Um, The uh, the theory uh, has been called the violence inhibition mechanism this responsiveness to facial distress cues and other signals of distress, and where that is impaired, the prediction is that it results in psychopathy.
0: This is a very famous theory in in forensic psychiatry and psychology, this violence inhibition mechanism, this idea that all of us have a violence inhibition mechanism, but it may be missing, or there may be a deficit in it, in in particularly dangerous individuals. And, And one sense of that is the fact that often you come across a violent scene where a violent crime has been committed. The violent psychopath stabs someone Repeatedly, like 20 times. Whereas if you and I even just hit someone or, or mild rebuke them and they get upset, we stop. There's something about the other person's emotional reaction that inhibits our violence. Yes. There's some other people out there who stab someone or yes. continue the violence repeatedly, even in the face of extreme distress in their victim.
3: Yes, that's correct. So the, um, the theory would be that the person, uh, that their behaviour, their ongoing behaviour is simply not inhibited by any subjective distress engendered by, the, by what they're doing to somebody and the distress that
0: they're engendering in the other, in the victim. So in this study, you recruited these uh, criminal psychopaths, you put them in a brain scanner to look at brain activity, and you asked them to look at happy faces in the scanner and also fearful faces. That's and, correct. And you were looking at brain activity patterns uh, in terms of the way they responded. What did you find? main
3: findings um, were that well what our main prediction was of course following on from the theory is that psychopaths would differ from controls in their responses to fearful faces they would have less activity in visual cortical and limbic areas but wouldn't differ for happy faces because the remember the theory is that there's a selective impairment in processing facial distress cues and other facial uh, expression recognition and responding is intact in actual fact what we found was that the psychopath showed reduced responsiveness in uh, visual cortical areas involved in processing faces for both fearful faces and for happy facial expressions Um, however it's also true to say that um, when we conducted the comparison looking at the change in activation as you go from uh, neutral facial expressions to happy facial expressions, the psychopaths showed a, n- a normal pattern of responding. That is to say, with the higher emotional salience of the happy facial expressions, they showed increased activity in visual cortical areas. So that suggests that um, even though um, their responding to happy faces is diminished compared to normal controls, the basic functional substrates Are intact, the system is intact, it's just responding less. However, with respect to the responses to fearful faces, we found a highly atypical response. Uh, What we found was that the people with the uh, disorder of psychopathy actually activated visual face processing regions less to fearful faces than to neutral faces which is a highly unusual response because it's very well established from many brain imaging experiments that um, as we look at fearful faces compared to neutral faces, there's a big increase in activation in face processing
0: regions. So these people's brains were less active as they were looking at these fearful faces?
3: That's right. That's within regions of the um, visual cortex which are particularly engaged in processing facial emotional information, facial expression
0: information. So sticking with the finding over the, their reaction to fearful faces, what are your thoughts about the implications of this finding?
3: Well, this finding has to be viewed in the context of all of the research that's going on into um, psychopathy uh, at present. And from in terms of the uh, behavioral research into facial emotion recognition, there's now good evidence uh, that both adults with psychopathic disorders And children who are exhibiting some psychopathic traits but whom it's not proper to describe as psychopaths um, show selective impairments in the recognition of facial expressions of distress. In other words, uh, fear and sadness. But don't show impairments compared to control groups in the recognition of other facial emotions. There is also evidence from neurobiological evidence of Reduced activity in the amygdala um, when people with uh, psychopathy are uh, in, engaged in an aversive conditioning task, which normally robustly activates the amygdala, and also when they're processing words with uh, negative emotional associations.
0: And the amygdala is a part of the brain that often becomes active when uh, negative emotions are involved or aversive emotions.
3: Uh, That's correct. In actual fact, the the amygdala seems to be particularly involved in the processing of fearful uh, faces, uh, but is more generally involved in emotion processing itself, but it becomes additionally active when processing fearful facial expressions. So the implication of that may be that our results, viewed in the context of all of this research, may give an additional uh, insight into an underlying Dysfunction in the amygdala because we know from many imaging studies that the amygdala has a role in boosting visual cortical activation to fearful facial expressions and generally emotionally salient facial expressions. So, the selective decrease in activation in visual cortices that we saw with respect to fearful facial expressions may indicate a selective underfunctioning or abnormality of the amygdala when processing fearful expressions.
0: Now, the the, the problem here, though, surely with this kind of research, is you're finding a brain activation difference. Mm. Um, Does it reflect perhaps the fact that psychopaths just aren't interested in these people's, other people's emotional states, and that if you asked them to become interested or gave them some kind of special training, they could overcome Yes. This, this, this deficit processing. In other words, it's not something that biological that they're kind of born with it and there's nothing they can do about it.
3: Yes. Um, well, that's, uh, that's a, a very um, important question and, and, then, and actually leads to considering what the potential relationship, not merely between brain activity and behavioral responding and dispositions are, but also potentially what the role of brain imaging might be uh, in conjunction with therapeutic approaches to uh, managing people with personality disorders like psychopathy and indeed other psychiatric uh, um, disorders. Um, I think it's it's uh, fair to say at, at present that the question you're asking is actually anticipating developments which have yet to occur. Uh, you're really thinking a step or two steps ahead of where we've got to in this. Uh, but it will be an important question to not merely address the relationship between um, activation within face processing systems and the behavioural competence to recognise faces, but also to see to what extent these responses are modified by cognitive factors, uh, such as the cognitive appraisal of the relevance or interest uh, of the facial stimuli. Um, But then also, can therapeutic interventions actually uh, modify these underlying patterns of responses. Dr. Dealey, thank you very
0: much indeed. Thank you. I'm joined here now by Judith Simon, a health economist based at the University of Oxford and at University College London, and Professor David Goldberg, a professor of psychiatry at the Institute of Psychiatry. They've published an intriguing paper looking at a health economist analysis They published an intriguing paper looking at a health economics analysis of clinical decision-making, particularly focusing on the issue of what's the best treatment to prescribe for depression in terms of what makes the most economic sense. Now, Judith, this kind of economic analysis of clinical decision-making is becoming ever more important. Why is that?
4: In all countries internationally, we experience the huge increase in uh, healthcare costs and also uh, a lot of uh, variabilities within health service provision and therefore uh, these days clinical guidelines shouldn't be developed anymore without looking actual the resource consequences of the different options as well alongside the benefits and risks and that's what the NICE guidelines try to uh, incorporate at the moment and this is a good example of what can be done and how it is done at the moment.
0: Now, Judith, if we could just have a look at some of the costs mentioned in your paper. You talk about the fact that the cost for standard treatment, which is just uh, an antidepressant alone without CBT, works out at roughly £200 for three months' treatment.
4: Yeah, uh, depending, on of course, what type of antidepressant we talk about. But in this case, we use fluoxetine. And if you uh, cost that treatment uh, and a standard NHS treatment that, that comes out, I think it's about £160 for three months. Yeah. And
0: now if we have a look at the cost of having a CBT therapist added on to the standard treatment, which is having an antidepressant for three months, how much did that work
4: out at? I think a course of uh, about 16 sessions of CBT costs around uh, between 8 and 900 pounds.
0: Professor Goldberg, many people would say that the gold standard treatment for the treatment of depression is to have a combination to have both the prescription of the effective antidepressant and also cognitive behavioral therapy.
5: No, I wouldn't agree with that at all. Um, The problem about cognitive behaviour therapy is the demand for it greatly exceeds the supply and uh, everybody would like cognitive behaviour therapy. There are very few trained therapists available and uh, we think it's important to ask ourselves what the incremental cost-effectiveness is. Um, When does it really pay to add cognitive behaviour therapy to a much cheaper treatment, uh, which is treatment with an antidepressant? And... I think one of the points we make, but it's really pretty well buried in the paper, is that it really only makes sense to do this in severe depression. Um, in moderate depression, the increment is really quite small. We're dealing with a very large additional cost. Um, because the difference in outcome of combination treatment in moderate depression is really just slightly more advantageous than a simple antidepressant, whereas in severe depression there's a very real difference, and that's what makes the um, interesting data which we present in the paper, um, arguing that it is a desirable thing to offer someone
0: who is severely depressed. The contrast between the figures is really quite staggering, isn't it? For example, the cost you work out in terms of what you buy uh, an extra quality for an extra quality adjusted life year costs roughly £6,000 per extra quality when you talk about um, the treatment of uh, serious depression. But when it comes to moderate depression, the figures are, are raised quite dramatically. It looks as though it costs fourteen, roughly £14,000 for uh, exactly the same purchase of a quality when you use combination therapy for the treatment of just moderate depression. And that's because the difference in
5: outcome is only slightly better in moderate depression with combination treatment. And so as there is not only a shortage of cash in the health service, but also a shortage of trained cognitive behaviour therapists, to be uh, sensible, it doesn't make any sense at all to give combination treatment in moderate depression. But we do show the evidence that it makes
0: some sense if you've got a lot of money to burn. So what you seem to be saying is it doesn't make sense from an economic standpoint to offer combination treatment an antidepressant plus CBT to people suffering from mild depression.
5: That's right. It's a health economic paper and we're saying it's a very expensive thing to offer people with moderate depression. But we also say, which is very much part of the NICE guideline, that you must respect patient preference. Uh, But you asked me about primary care, and I think it would be completely potty to offer cognitive behaviour therapy in primary care until you're offered problem solving, which is a treatment that can be done by many members of the primary care staff and uh, is really quite effective in managing depression in primary care.
0: Professor Goldberg, could you explain what problem-solving is? Yes, you're getting people
5: to um, first to choose their main problem rather than feel beset by a hundred different problems, and then you get them to generate possible solutions to it. You get them to look at the pros and cons of each solution, you prioritise it, and you get them to work on their favoured um, solution to a problem by the next time you see them. And uh, it is a very much cheaper treatment, and it's
0: conceptually easier to teach primary care staff. So it sounds like you would say the gold standard for the treatment of depression is problem-solving. In primary care, it is the gold standard. Judith, this figure of a quality-adjusted life year crops up a lot in this paper and many other economic analysis these days of uh, health services. Could you explain exactly what a quality-adjusted life year is, or a quali?
4: Yeah, it's an outcome measure used by health economists. It's a generic outcome measure which tries to combine the quality of life and the quantity of life uh, health gain in one outcome measure. It's a quite specific one, but uh, because it's a generic measure, it gives the potential to compare uh, outcomes between different disease areas, not just within one disease area, and that's why it's preferred currently currently by the National Institute for uh, Health and Clinical Excellence. And just one addition to what Professor Goldberg said, and you mentioned earlier, actually the 14,000 pounds per quali is not that high if you think that currently the nice threshold is 30,000 pounds per quali. However, if you look at the uncertainty range around this estimate, which you can see also in the paper, it goes up to a much higher value, and therefore we cannot be sure where the real cost-effectiveness lies. And that's why we came to the decision that taking into consideration affordability, feasibility plus cost-effectiveness, we shouldn't provide this in moderate depression.
0: So it looks like the NICE threshold for what it would make sense to fund in terms of a treatment seems much higher than your figures for depression would
4: suggest. No, I'm saying that you cannot base such decisions on a point estimate of cost effectiveness. You always need to look at the range, the uncertainty range around it. And if you look at that, it's, it goes well beyond £30,000 per quality. And as all the facts, what Professor Goldberg mentioned before, if we took those into consideration as well, uh, the guideline group felt that it would be uh, not right to recommend. Uh, CBT, uh, plus antidepressant therapy for moderate depression as well.
0: Professor Goldberg, is uh, NICE, the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, taking into account these economic analyses before it actually gives advice in terms of what treatments it thinks doctors should prescribe, or is it doing so afterwards? In other words, how much of an impact is economic analysis making on its decision-making?
5: No, we did um, economic studies during the deliberations of the group and we took into account uh, what Judith Simon was telling us because she did various analyses for us and uh, one of the analyses she did that didn't find its way into the guideline, much to my regret, was looking at the costs of problem-solving in primary care. Now, it is a more expensive treatment than antidepressant treatment, um, but it's often preferred by patients. And because of this, it's important to know how much extra it costs, um, and it depends who does it, because if it's done by a nurse, it's very much cheaper than if it's done by the GP. But many GPs like to learn problem-solving and like to do it.
0: But isn't there a lot of evidence that patients seem to prefer non-evidence-based psychotherapy treatments over evidence-based ones?
5: Yes, uh, patient preference is difficult to predict in an individual case and uh, it sometimes doesn't um, have any much rationale to it. But the uh, most people who receive problem-solving are pleased with it. Interestingly, the effects of problem-solving are not directly proportional to the number of problems solved. And the other interesting thing is that um, if you get people to rate their problems before and after treatment, antidepressants cause just as big a fall in perceived problems as problem-solving does. Um, But it is a non-pharmacological treatment, uh, and its efficacy is about the same as an antidepressant
0: in primary care. Juliet, you came up with a very interesting figure in terms of the probability of remission, depending on what treatment you used. Could you explain what that was?
4: Uh, in the probability of uh, successful treatment, which means that during the analysis time frame, which was 15 months, three months initial therapy, and then 12 months follow-up without maintenance therapy, that was the case we took into consideration. And that means that uh, uh, you would have uh, 16% more chance to actually uh, reach remission and not to relapse uh at the end of fifteen months, if you have if you receive a combination therapy versus antidepressant treatment only
0: now this sixteen percent figure didn't strike me as a very high number. Did that surprise you as to how low that figure was
4: uh, yeah, well if you look at the the absolute values, if you compare i think yeah if you compare that overall the successful rate is only fourteen percent with antidepressant treatment, and 29% with combination therapy. So if you look into it not as a difference but as absolute values, then actually it's quite a striking uh, difference, one-sixth compared to one-third of the people.
0: What did you think about the figures, Professor Goldberg? Well,
5: I was interested that combination treatment wasn't doing very much better with moderate depression than a simple antidepressant, and uh, I found that quite impressive. And uh, the... um, incremental difference though in severe depression is quite um, noticeable and quite remarkable.
0: Now many patients say they want counselling and complain that the doctor reaches for the prescription pad too quickly. Actually your paper is suggesting that that reach for the prescription pad is entirely the correct rational economic decision in a, in a large number of cases. Well, I think it's important to stress that this
5: paper isn't really about depression in primary care. It's about depression in specialist care. And uh, the primary care is a really rather different set of problems. Uh, I have every sympathy with patients who don't want doctors to prescribe and want someone to talk to them about their problems, whether it's by non-directive counselling or whether it's by a more structured approach to dealing with their problems. That seems to me to be completely sensible of them and uh, uh, and we should make sure that the health service can provide these treatments luckily it isn't difficult to provide the training
0: doesn't this economic analysis rather hinge on certain assumptions in particular the assumptions you make over the cost of the prescription of the drug though you've used Prozac here is it not the case that maybe other drugs would vary widely in cost perhaps other drugs might be much cheaper than Prozac. And wouldn't that kind of throw off balance your economic analysis?
5: No, there's very little difference because Prozac came off license during the deliberations of the, of the guideline development group. And the difference with, say, Omipramine and Prozac are now quite negligible. Um, The cost of professional time has been costed into Judith's calculations. It's not just the cost of the drug, and uh, it's quite important to understand that, that these costings do include the costs of people's time as well as the drug they reach for.
0: Professor Goldberg, is the future of clinical decision-making going to hinge on this kind of economic analysis? Oh, it should do, um, because
5: I don't see the health service becoming flush with money in the foreseeable future, and uh, it is very important to know what the best payoff is in offering treatments to people. Um, It's interesting that this particular paper is about straightforward, moderate or severe depression in specialist care, but... A much bigger problem which we couldn't deal with in this paper are people who simply don't respond to antidepressants. And about a third of the people who are offered antidepressants don't just not respond to the first antidepressant, they don't respond to the second either. And these people really have a very strong claim to a psychological treatment. And if psychological treatments are in effect wasted, by being offered to people who would respond as well to much cheaper treatments, it is an absurd use of society's limited resources. I think I'd like to put a point here that quite senior psychiatrists don't seem to understand about NICE guidelines. Uh, They get cross with us for having recommended cognitive behaviour therapy and make the obvious point that there aren't um, enough cognitive behaviour therapists to satisfy the demand, but that isn't our job. Uh, It's the job of ministers to decide what, where resource should be spent. It isn't our job, our job is to look at the science and to say, what, what do these treatments produce? And what do they cost to produce their effects? That's all we have to do. We don't have to say, should more money be being spent on cognitive therapy training in my private capacity? I think there most certainly should be. And, uh, but that wasn't the nature of the task in producing a nice guideline.
0: Isn't there, though, an issue over the standardization of treatment? That it's relatively easy to standardize a, a tablet. We, we can be fairly confident that everyone receiving that tablet is receiving exactly the same treatment. But how confident can we be that different people receiving, even though it might be the same psychotherapy, they're going to be receiving it from different psychotherapists? We know that the quality uh, of different psychotherapists might, might vary quite markedly. How confident can we be that when different people are receiving the same psychotherapy from different therapists, they're actually receiving the same standardised treatment?
5: Well, they're manual-driven therapies, but you're obviously right in that the um, way a different individual therapist administers the therapy may be um, there's a lot of variability in it. Um, it's worth remembering there's a variability in individual's response to the same pill, um, If I take a tablet, I may respond in a different way to when you take the same tablet. And uh, this problem of variability is not confined to psychological interventions. But I would agree with you that it's probably an even greater problem. But you have to take a sort of mean. um, And look, that's why we don't get swayed by very small number studies. We need to have a large number of patients um, before we um, come to a conclusion. And the assumption is that you've captured the essential um, contribution the therapy makes despite the fact that it suits some people and in some people it's done better than in other people.
0: Now Judith the results of your paper are really quite startling and and perhaps to many people counterintuitive but this is the kind of analysis that health economists do but health economists are not traditionally very popular with doctors.
4: These kind of analyses, I think this is a basic uh, problem that people don't understand that what we try to look at is that the additional health benefit you get from a new treatment or a combination treatment, does it worth the additional cost? And uh, because all medical decisions have opportunity cost, and maybe if you would spend the same amount of money different way you would end up gaining more health benefit and that's why these analyses are done nine guidelines and it's not really replacing the guideline groups decision making process it's simply actually adding additional information to the guideline groups decision so that they can actually see the problem from different angles and then based on the evidence decide what they think the best is to recommend
0: Judith Simon and Professor David Goldberg, thank you both very much. Well, that's all we have time for in this month's podcast from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. Please do tune in next month to hear some more interviews with people publishing research at the cutting edge of psychiatry and psychology. In the meantime, we'd be very interested to hear any feedback you have to give us about these podcasts, so please don't hesitate to contact us via the Royal College of Psychiatrists website. Please don't forget there are also more podcasts in the CPD, or Continuing Professional Development, section of the Royal College of Psychiatrists website. So, until next month, goodbye.